This is the Masters of Cinema cast. My name is Joachim Thiessen, and today I have with me a guest, Peter Labusa from the Cinefeliacs. Thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, before we get into the film that we are going to discuss today, Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, I thought we could talk about your background and kind of the job you do as a film critic and how you got started into film criticism to podcasting and so on. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about uh, your background and where, how, do you, how did you fall into like the film critic circle? Those are very good questions. I mean, I, like a lot of people, I sort of caught the cinema bug in high school when I was reading Roger Ebert and A.O. Scott and Manolo Dargis and uh, Michael Phillips, sort of, you know, those guys. I, I grew up in Minnesota. Um, and it was also the age of Netflix. So, you know, you read, you read, oh, there's this film, Citizen Kane, you should see. So now I have access to Citizen Kane and, Mm. you know, watched things like, uh, all the early Scorsese's from the seventies. I remember having a very vivid memory of the first time I sat down with Birth of a Nation, which was, of course, a very interesting experience. Um, (laughs) then I went to, uh, college at, uh, Columbia University where, I took classes in film studies. I got to, uh, the sort of highlight I always say is I got to take a class on Howard Hawks with Andrew Saris, which, you know, absolutely just like Hmm. was, I mean, I mean, he was much older at the time. He was about 80 and didn't provide, it wasn't a big lecture or something, but just being with him and exploring Hawks was sort of great. And then, and then from there, I just sort of tried to, I graduated and I was working at a law firm, which I actually still occasionally work at still to, you know, make ends meet here and there. And uh, I started going to movies two, three nights a week because New York, I mean, the this great thing about New York is the repertory scene of like, you can just see three William Wellman films on a night <laughs> or you can run from, I remember one night I ran from a Busby Berkeley feature on the West Village to they were showing Albert Brooks's modern romance on the East Village. So it's just like darting across the streets, just trying to make it there in time. And, you know, they always just have great repertory. And I, I mean, I'd been writing blogs and stuff since 2004, 2005, um, all of it very, very badly. Um, <laughs> as, and I would say still badly, but you know, maybe slightly better at, um, uh, then the my big br- quote break was um I decided to do a video essay because I was watching what uh, Matt Zoller Seitz and Kevin B Lee were doing with press play and I thought it was just so fascinating I thought it was a really interesting form and mm. I really really loved Abbas Kirstami's Certified Copy I thought that was just a film that was a film that really opened a lot of windows for me and ways of engaging with cinema, thinking about cinema, thinking of philosophy through cinema and cinema as philosophy. And like, so I just charted down and I thought like, well, maybe if I can do a video essay on this, like um, I can sort of figure out what I think about the movie and not how to quote, solve the mystery at the center of it, but how trying to solve the mystery makes you engage with certain ideas. And I did a a video essay and Matt saw it and he's like, why don't you take it off your blog and we'll put it on the site and I'll send you a paycheck for it. And that's, um, from there I just kept meeting people and, uh, that's sort of how I got started writing professionally. Hmm. 
And you're part of what could be termed as sort of the new generation of film critics out there, the Netflix generation. Um, do, do you sense a sort of like generational divide out there between you and the more like weather-worn critics? Or mm. are you just one big yeah, happy family? <laughs> you know, I think there's, I think there are divides. I think I would say there's a divide earlier. I was just um, on this will uh this will go up later then but i just recorded a podcast with kent jones mm. um who you know is very much part of the vhs generation mm. so i feel like the vhs dvd netflix generation are maybe all part of a same group which is like this post 70s film critic circle um because i often find like um one of my closest friends is keith ulick for time out new york and he always says he has I, I'm actually pretty big on like wanting to watch films in the theater, but he says he'll, he can watch anything anywhere. And as long as the film speaks to him, he'll have a great experience with it. I mean, there's definitely generational divide sometimes between what I find between me and like some of my friends who are in that group that's about 10 years older than me is our hmm. reference points are different when it comes to like they know a lot of just obscure mostly terrible 80s films that I've never heard of. <laughs> How important you came from the academic world of Colombia and mm -hmm. uh, studying film criticism. How important is that to you when you're writing and doing your film essays? Um, I mean, I'm still part of it. I just finished my master's degree and I'm going to do a PhD in the fall, actually. And mm. it's, you know, it's a weird line. And actually, I've been I've been doing interviews with professors at schools and they're always wary of the criticism side of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I've always sort of seen them together. I mean, I've had like, I've always had editors who say, you know, your your critic writing has a little too much academic side to mm. it. And then academics say you have a little too much critic side to it. And it's like, well, for me, it's all one voice. I don't know how to like break that voice. But I think they're important. I mean, I don't, when I do academic work, you know, I don't approach it in the way, I think when people think of academics and this is, um, something that's part of that older generation of like that it was about, you know, studying ideology and psychoanalysis and sort of all this sort of post sixties film theory ideas of, you know, deconstructing how these films are, you know, sending us certain messages. I was just trying to read, um, cause I saw for the first time, John Ford's young Mr. Lincoln. Mm. And I was trying to read the very famous Kai du cinema piece from 69 on the film which is literally incomprehensible i don't know how anyone <laughs> read that so i mean i see myself when i say i do academic word i see myself more in the tradition of like what david boardwell tries to do where i think he i i'm trying to investigate how these movies work and how they function but that's how i do in most of my criticism you know this these whole questions of good bad whatever sort of i think they naturally develop out of when you think about these things of like what you if you think about it, but I think um, at the end, it's like the observations that you're making are always going to be the same, whether you're an academic or you're a critic, and no matter sort of what voice or style you're writing for. And so I see them working in tangent, and I'm, I'm always like trying to footnote things in my critic works, which doesn't most editors absolutely deplore. <laughs> do, you, do you think you can be um, like taught criticism or taught how to how to observe films or do you think you you're simply learning how to write and the voice is something you have to like temper yourself you know i was i was talking to another critic the other day and he said something that i thought was actually very smart is that 
there's there's critics who are really good for their writing and there's critics who are really good for their ideas. Mm. And it, I don't think it's, it's not mutually exclusive, but I think, you know, I think someone like, I don't like bashing her too much, but I think Pauline Kale is certainly for me, someone who I like more for the writing mm-hmm. and the way that she takes me on a journey through her writing than necessarily her ideas on cinema, which feel like for me, a second rate Manny Farber in a way. Um <laughs> Manny Farber's probably the one who was able to do it both. But you know, um I think in terms of the voice that you try and create and being taught criticism, it's it's criticism's a really weird thing. I think it's a really weird thing, but it's something I find the reason I do it is I see this movie, my head can't, has to think about it and has to write about it. It has to get that idea out. I was just, I wrote like a very brief thing on Letterboxd, this sort of cinephile website that some people have really taken on to. And I, and I saw DeMille's The Cheat, this film from 1915. And I was just thinking about the shadows that are used in it. And I needed to figure out a way to describe what I thought the shadows were doing and what they were trying to and how that space of cinema was being used differently by shadows that was very different from watching like a D.W. Griffith film from the time or a Charlie Chaplin film from the time. And so I just wrote out like 300 words and I was tinkering with it just to like have that thought. And I don't know if people can be taught. I think I think academic training is really good because it teaches you how to look at shots and how to think about shots. But I think it always at the end of the day it depends on how you know criticism is just you responding to what you see mm. and you got to sort of look at it and engage with it and think it and then and then by writing it or saying it then it becomes a thought and it's reality before it's just it's cluttered i feel right it's like that's the final process and i feel not you the people who do it really really well do it because they have to and they need to do that and if they don't do that they feel like the film is incomplete in a way mm. um your interest in the process of criticism is that kind of the gist of the idea behind cinephile x and why you started that show or yeah it was definitely you know i always said that it wasn't going to be just a critics show that is the, the cinephile x being this podcast where each every week or every two weeks that i do it i sit down with someone who's sort of engaged in the film world and just talk to them about the work I, originally i didn't want it just to be critics but critics were the people i knew and the people who you know i could say hey i started this new show can you please sit down with me for two hours and let me <laughs> tinker with your brain um but it's something where you know i i started with um you know the the one of the famous podcasts out there one of the most popular ones is wtf with mark Marin, who's <laughs> this comic who interviews other comics and I don't. I, I like the show. I'm not in love with it, but I thought it was really what, what one of my favorite things about it was that this was a show where Mark Maron, who knew comedy well and the process of comedy, interviewed other people who do the same thing. So there was somewhat of an insider language that they could work through and relate to in a way that you know if. Someone, someone else completely outside the world interviewed Mark Maron. It's going to be a very different interview. So mm. I knew if I sat down with someone like Glenn Ketty or Matt Zoller Seitz or, you know, um, A.O. Scott, that I have a language that can provide 
for an interview with them and a way of engaging through their criticism that someone else might not necessarily be able to. Hmm. And just being able to think through that and sort of work those ideas made it really fun. And part of it was I just want to sit down with these guys for two hours and just pick their brains as much as possible. And, like, <laughs> you know, it's so much fun to, like, see – and because there are, like we we're saying, there are very different voices and styles to criticism. Every, you know, it's much as a style as film can be a style. And so just to sort of sit there and try and figure out, okay, how do I see this movie or this idea through this person's eyes? And by being there in the room and talking with them and trying to get through that, I feel like sometimes I can unlock that. And if I can share that with everyone in the world, that's, that's great too. Hmm. Um, so the film we are going to discuss today, that is Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter from 1957, um, a Frank Tashlin film. And you chose this film uh, for yes. this episode. Uh, why? Um, I am in love with Frank Tashlin. He is. So Frank Tashlin is this guy who he started out working with T Chuck Jones and Looney Tunes. Um, I always forget which shorts he's specifically responsible uh, I think there's, he was working, he first worked in Aesop's films, Fables, which is a sort of earlier version. Um, but I just thought he was so inventive and smart when he just did these really great Looney Tunes shorts. And actually success with Spoil Rock Hunter was the first one of his films that I saw, which actually comes after his period with Jerry Lewis at, when he was do he did, um, I think something like 10 films with mm. Jerry Lewis and a bunch of those with Dean Martin. And, for me, what Frank Tashlin represents is sort of, you know, there's all these questions of Hollywood and being a subversive Hollywood filmmaker. And the idea for me of why I love Frank Tashlin is, and specifically I think this film, is he loves in that way that Looney Tunes does the same thing of making you think about the properties of films by making you laugh at the functions of them, you know, he, hmm. as much as this film is a parody of advertising culture and celebrities, it's a parody of the filmmaking process itself. I mean, I love that opening in which he's like mimicking the trumpet and, you know, trying to telling you the credits, the Tony Randall character and sort of like making you rethink like the way that the film is being, the film feels like it's being made in itself. And so I just think this one, this is probably one of his wildest movies, which is just so comically over the top, which I think, um, you know, you mentioned before, can throw people off. Either you <laughs> sort of go with that style or you don't. He's sort of just sort of like, he's very, very abrasive. Saris, um, Andrew Saris in the American cinema, I mean, he includes him in Expressive Esoterica, but you can just tell he is, Saris was not particularly fond of he knew Tashlin was a great artist but he I don't think he ever really enjoyed his style of humor mm. um which again like it's it's you either roll with it or not but I think that Tashlin by sort of exposing his own process of filmmaking makes the advertising satire and the whole thing work in a way that's very different from I mean this is the great double bill with the apartment because it has the executive room wash key idea uh, mm. As a major plot point as well, except, you know, Wilder's very, very cautious, and I love that film, but Wilder's a very cautious filmmaker, is working within, you know, this sort of realty, re reality, and then Tasslin is the one who's just over the top and exposing everything 
on every level and doing it in a very comic way. But you might have a different way of how you approach this film. Um, the apartment um, connection struck me because that was one that I uh, I really responded to that one more than this one just because of the reality and the humor struck me as more up my alley uh, really. Mm-hmm. Um, this is um, I'm not that big a fan of this postmodernism humor with the right. satire and the constant uh, referral to uh, real world, right? Um, l- like the stuff from. Uh, uh, I, I was surprised that this film uh, was as postmodernistic as it was, seeing that we get this all the time now, but I can't imagine it being as prolific in the 50s. No, it, I mean, this was like, I mean, I know this one was like, Godard was one of the big fans, and he mm. wrote something about it, or he put it on his top 10 list, and uh, I tried to pull, he doesn't write much about it, except he had like this adoration for Tashlin. Um But I think it was like, he was very unique at this time. I mean, there are other postmodernist filmmaker, whatever. I, I don't even know if it's postmodern or whatever you want to call it. It's it just like, I think he's just interested in film as a form and sort of poking fun at like these very specific Hollywood codes. I'm trying to think. I mean, Jerry Lewis obviously is the other big one. And that's where like, you know, you see, I'm a, the films they do before this, like Hollywood and Bust, and especially Artists and Models, I think is their agreed best one between Tashlin, Dean Martin, and Jerry Lewis, um, as a lot of sort of the same filmic film gags uh, or just parody and how film works that I think are really, really funny as well. Um, but I'm trying to think, you know, he was the only one that really pushed it as far I think I think there are other people who are making fun of film, and I think if like I mean obviously there's the Marx Brothers, and there's the very famous still rights issued unreleased film from 1941, Hell's a Poppin', which uh, if you've never seen the first 15 minutes, I think are it's it's everyone says this the first 15 minutes of Hell's a Poppin', and there's like they spoil the ending of Citizen Kane in 1941, <laughs> uh, are like the greatest moment of cinema, and the rest of the movie is pretty good as well, but. Um, it doesn't come. And I think, but there's two differences why I think the Marx Brothers and Hells of Poppin are both films that come out of the vaudeville tradition, that they're, they're people mm. in vaudeville always sort of, you know, poked fun of, of its own performativity, what have you. Um, but I think it's key that Tashlin comes from cartoons first and working with Chuck Jones, because I mean, I grew up with those Roadrunner cartoons and this film is a live action cartoon. I mean, I was just thinking about, there's a scene where Jane Mansfield and uh, Tony Randall are like dancing and just watching his eyes. He just feels like he's right about to fall asleep. He has such a cartoonish face in this movie. And I don't know if you get that uh, with a lot of other actors or even filmmakers who are willing to like, you know, really make their, the faces of their protagonists feel so grotesque and so bizarre. Uh, and Jane Mansfield sort of doing this Marilyn Monroe parody with that sound she always makes. They're like, Oh, like I mean I just I crack up at that every time but I think again it comes back to this idea that he's coming from this animation background which was so self-referential so like pushing the boundaries of its own where like it doesn't follow a logic that is necessarily Hollywood and it was okay in cartoons and I think Taslin tried to transfer that to live action filmmaking in a way and I don't know if um I mean 
Joe Dante is the obvious reference that I know in the MOC um, release. He does an intro for it, I believe, or do, does a, uh, yeah, he gives an intro and a video about why he loves this film. Because I think he's the closest, even today, in terms of someone who wants to push the boundaries of how cinema works, of trying to make how a film can be self-referential, but still work as a narrative at the same time. And Tashlam seems aware of the ridiculousness of Hollywood and the celebrity and pop culture and all its flaws, but you you never get the feeling that he's bitter about it. it. This isn't like mean satire. It seems like he wouldn't want it any other way, and he even relishes in it. Yeah, I think he really does when he's looking at those apps. I think especially like, you know, those advertisements that appear at the beginning of the film. I think... I, I mean, he's making fun of them at the same time he's having fun with them. And I think he has fun with them as much because I think he looks at these things and thinks like this is like I feel like that would have been his alternate life is like he would love to make those advertisements because I think when he looks at advertisements where they don't have to follow the rules of sort of narrative continuity uh, where they can, you know, poke fun and they can address the screen. These are like the things that he loves. And I think he loves sort of like watching this game in a way that, you know, going back to the apartment, I feel like the apartment is critiquing that society. And it is like trying to like position itself and see how the society worked in a different way and sort of like, you know, trying to find the holes of like, you know, what masculine culture is, you know, what femininity is, where women can have freedom, but where they can't have freedom. I don't feel like, I think Taslin made this film. And like you said, he doesn't, he doesn't care as much as he just wants to make fun of like all the, he wants to make fun as much as celebrate the bizarre world he has, because I think he looks at that. This is a world where all these crazy opportunities. And like, there's the scene where, um, when James Mansfield first meets Rock Hunter and she's on the phone with uh, her husband and, uh, or is it her husband or boyfriend? I forget. Boyfriend. And boyfriend. Yeah. It's just like, you know, his, he's like, what's your name? Rock Hunter. It's like, his name is Rockwell Hunter. And like, when he says like, Oh, I write television ads. She's like, Oh, that won't do that. That won't do. And like, I just love that, you know, this, all these games these tr they try and play and, and the sort of the stuff with Joan Blondell as a secretary. I mean, it's all this sort of fantastical game. And I think that's what a lot of um, Frank Tasson's films are, just these games these people playing. And I think like I think this why Dante comes up so much as sort of this reference point for Tasson or that his reference point is Tasson is because he is having as much fun parodying the culture as much as he loves the fact that this culture exists to parody. You mentioned that she had some familiarity with Tashlin's filmography. Mm -hmm. And Tashlin's an interesting case because uh, like directors like Wilder, they went from war pictures to comedy to drama, but Tashlin is one that only worked in comedy throughout his entire filmography. I don't think Tashlin could have ever done a serious picture. I mean, I mean, that's why I think he like, Saris knew he had to include him in Expressive Esoterica in the American cinema was like he knew that like this was a filmmaker who is who took comedy so seriously. I, I, I think that's what Godard writes about it about him in his review of Rock Hunter is like like Taslin is such a seriously comic filmmaker. And I think he says something like that, like Rock Hunter is actually his 
least funny film because it takes its comedy so seriously or something, but that's why it's its most brilliant. It's something convoluted like that in a very Godardian fashion. But um, I can't imagine him doing a serious film. And and not all his films are funny. I, I know last year I got a chance to see, um, I believe it's Bachelor Pad, from this film he did from 1962 or something. Uh, let me just double check here, right here. Um, Bachelor Flat, which is not one of his funniest films. It's about like uh, this sort of British professor who is invites this former student slash friend and they're like both sharing this bachelor flat and they're trying to both get, you know, have these romances with like other people and this, his, and it's sort of like the whole film's sort of a mess, but you see some of this, there's really inventive visual comedy in that one. That's one that's very unself-referential, um, but it's using space and sort of like these jokes of like who's indoors and people running around this, this flat that's in, in, uh, Malibu Beach and sort of like everyone's just moving in spaces and trying to hide and dodge and duck. So he finds sort of like this inventive sort of comedy there. But I don't think he could, he only knew how to take comedy seriously. I can't imagine. I mean, I mean, this, even in Rock Hunter, when the film, like the whole stuff with Tony Randall's girlfriend is sort of like the, oh, you darn cat. And like, you know, it, it never, I don't, I don't think, it, they, I don't think he writes himself into a hole, but you never, you never care whether they're going to end up together or not. And I don't think Tasseling cared as much as sort of like, well, we have to do it because that's got to solve the plot. And, but they even so, but he does find that, you know, there's a very beautiful touching moment. I think where they're kissing behind like on a silhouette and it's like a red curtain or something in the office. And I think, I think he did have these tender moments, but like in a way that Wilder, like actually just revisit the apartment. It's not, particular i mean it's funny the first half hour is very funny but then it's just it is just really really sad it's really brutal it i mean i adore that film but it is just it's pretty hard to watch actually i found just in terms of like the emotional impact of it and i feel like tashlin could not do that but nor did he want to and nor should he have i i think he knew i think he knew his limits and just worked within what he thought he could do it's interesting that this film, it has to set up for both a serious drama with the man risking to lose his job. Right. And there's also later the studio romantic comedy with the mm -hmm. triangle drama. But this film doesn't play out by the conventional Hollywood studio genre. Yeah. Well, I think part of that comes from that this was a, uh, it was on Broadway first, that it was a Broadway play. And, uh, you know, it's, I think, I think this was, I'm pretty sure this was the first film that he did after Jerry Lewis left him and wanted to direct his own movie. So I think he was sort of um, really wanted to get a property, wanted to work with a property really, really quickly. James Mansfield came from the Broadway play. Tony Randall was not probably his first choice in any way. And I think I, I've seen Tony in a couple other shows, and I don't find him particularly fun funny otherwise i think he's like i think he got very very lucky working with taslin that he found someone who knew how to expose him and make him I, oh yeah he's in pillow talk and he's pretty unwatchable in pillow talk um but i think he just he worked with the property and i think he wanted to take the property in as many unique directions as he can, could and really just push it 
in ways that, you know, they didn't do the television advertising spoofs in it. And, you know, I think he wanted to just show as much. I think there was this big worry for Tony Randall or for um, Frank Toshlin at the time that like, oh, it was Jerry Lewis who was always the genius of it. And, you know, Frank Toshlin was just sort of this like bystander to Jerry Lewis's, you know, genius with Dean Martin and sort of working with those two together. And I think Tashlin probably felt he had something to prove with this film, and that's why it's so self-referential, and why he wanted to, you know, make it as bizarre and insane as possible and make, you know, James Mansfield as much as, like, this huge parody of Marilyn Monroe as he could. And, like, you know, because, like, I think that's clearly the reference being made that she is this Marilyn Monroe-like figure. Not that James Mansfield wasn't her own big star in her own way, but, like, definitely it feels like I think she performs that voice in a way that's so specific and like the way that you see how she uses a voice in some scenes and different voices in others to sort of represent and just her in that lavish bubble bath just like soaking it all in literally i want to get back to frank tashlin a little bit and we can return to the actors later but he was a painter he was a writer a cartoonist he was working inside and outside the studio system in both live action and animation mm -hmm. he was director and producer of films tv radio he wrote and illustrated children's books i mean this guy did a lot of different stuff and he also produced and directed this film and, and adapted it from the stage play and he must have been held in quite a quite a high esteem by the studio to be allowed to completely rewrite the play for the screen and then just simply run with it. Yeah, I think he was like this. I mean, he, like I said, he was definitely, he had a lot of success with Jerry Lewis that I think gave him the opportunity to like have more authority at the time. But he definitely like, I mean, he really loved working with just visual material in a way. And like you said, like he was a painter, cartoonist, like he he really, really liked engaging and trying to play with all these and just playing with form. I think it's so key for him that he would just jump around and try and do. And I think um, I think the reason that he wanted to work with so many different forms was he always wanted to push things to limitations. I mean, like you can't. I think with Rock Hunter, which is why it's my favorite Tasslin, he's literally trying to make, push up to every boundary of the Hollywood studio comedy as you can and just push that line and then maybe tiptoe over it before he comes back round into it. So I think he wanted to work with other art forms where he could also do that, where he could also push these boundaries. And I think that's why he was so beloved by the Kaidu Cinema sort of group, because he was the one that, you know, was taking the form of the Hollywood film and then just like making, exposing exactly how it worked and trying to do it. And I think that's why like Godard and Truffaut and I think Rivette really, really loved this film in particular, because it, it just brought the form in so many unexpected ways that they didn't see before. We've been talking a lot about the visual elements in the film, but what really grabbed me was the, the audio elements in yes. the film. There's a lot of Mickey Mousing, mm -hmm. and also the use of music where the theme song, the Rock Hunter theme song, mm -hmm. they, they kind of use that over and over again, but in different notes, portraying like his different moods and when he's kind of on a high note, they play it really lively, and when he's kind of dour, they do kind of a somber, melancholy version of it, or when he's distressed, 
there's different usage and um, yeah. Right. I mean, that kind of reminds me of the long goodbye, the Robert Altman where it plays the same theme over and over. But yeah, I, I mean, the sound is definitely in the same sort of vein where it's really just pushing up against like, just like, I think, again, by using that same theme and using it in tone, he's making you aware of how sounds being used in a very different way. You know, if it was just like a, say a classical Hollywood comedy score, you would feel the emotions, but you wouldn't be aware. I think he makes you want to know that you're, he wants you to, like you were saying, he wants you to pleasure in the emotional manipulation as much as he wants you to be aware that you're being manipulated in the form. And so I think that's sort of like why it creates a sort of dystopic, almost obliteration of form at the same time where everything is sort of together and different where it feels like you're playing the theme i mean it's like this idea that you know tony randall just wants to live this very private life he wants his chicken farm but he has to suddenly become this public figure through his private life so it's kind of perfect that he has this you know theme song following him around that he can't escape at all Hmm. one thing that i had a problem with was it's kind of questionable use of Jenny where she's, I mean, mean, the way they use her throughout the film with the exercising and her waiting on him. You know, it's, it is what it is. It's like, I think, like I said, you know, Frank, Frank Taslin is a cartoonist. He doesn't necessarily care about emotional sympathy. And she sort of gets, she's definitely the butt of like the entire movie because, and I think, Fairly and unfairly, because, you know, she's the most straight, I I mean, except for Tony Randall and Rock Hunter, uh, you know, she's the most straight edge figure of it. But I think she has to be, someone has to sort of, you know, be the fall guy of this movie. And I think she does a good job. And And I do think Tasselin finds these moments of sympathy for her. Like I said, that I think that very, very nice scene in the office with the silhouette. Um it's definitely not, but I think he always treated, I, I don't know if you want to call it misogyny or whatever, but, you know, his his women are often treated as buffoons. There's this amazing sequence in um in Artists and Models with Shirley MacLaine. Well, actually, that's a pretty different, actually, it's a, an opposite side, where um, there's this great scene in Artists and Models where um, Shirley MacLaine is absolutely in love with Jerry Lewis's character, and she sings this great, big ballad on the staircase that Jerry Lewis keeps trying to like go up the stairs with this box and he keeps falling over as she just like like blatantly like bellows into his face so she, I mean he becomes the big butt of that joke but I think you know someone's got to be the fall guy and unfortunately it's Jenny in this movie I think the doctor says push-ups are a waste of time better for women to go to the store yeah and it I just I just don't know really what he's trying to say with the character. Is he saying that she really needs to do this as an exercise? Or is she saying that she's being pushed into doing this? Or is she doing this to antagonize? You know, I think for um, Taslin, again, I think he, like, this film is just so, like, openly mocking all this 1950s culture in a way. And I don't think I don't think he's saying that Jenny is wrong to want to do this and to keep her body in shape and that she should go to the store. I think I think what he's doing is trying to expose a sort of 
culture that says she has to do this, she has to do that, she has to do this, and like, um, because you know, at the at the end of the day, you know, they do get their uh, they do get their chicken farm. If I'm yeah, yeah, that they are gonna go retire to the country and get the like. I mean, the the solution to this movie is that uh, Rock Hunter and Jenny are gonna escape this entire world and get the hell out of it because like there is no solution to it. And I don't think you know, there's I don't know, like, you know, questions of ideology or whatever, if what would it really suggest at the end that there is no escape, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I think, you know, the whole thing for her is like, is that there is no, I, for, there is no escape within this culture that, you know, you can want to do these things. You can try and better yourself. You can try and, you know, follow your own sort of path. But in the advertising culture, that's being parody in the celebrity culture. It's all part of it. Every part of your private life becomes part of this public sphere. And every part of like your own wants and desires are going to be commodified and pushed in this sort of way that you have to live this certain life. Yeah. And that's kind of how the film wraps up where rock hunter is holding this monologue saying that the average guys, they're the ones that run society and trends and elections and whatever. And Groucho Marx appears. Of course, but he really isn't saying anything new. It's like you have the power not to buy this product, but you're going to have to buy this other product if you want to, because you can choose, but no one really has the power to escape the system of, uh, like, capitalism. Right. And I don't think, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, I don't think Tashlin looks at this and says, oh, my God, this is horrifying, whatever, like, um, you know, capitalism is the end all. I, I think the the Kaidu cinema, they definitely took it that, that this way, that this was the strong Latin critique of capitalism. Um I mean, it's just like I saw another 1957 film last night. I saw The Pajama Game, which is um, Stanley Donnan. It's this musical with Doris Day that's sort of about a, a worker's strike at a pajama factory. Um, and Godard also wrote about that film. And he was talking about how the, the choreography is by Bob Fosse. And it's really great to see this sort of Stanley Donnan classical musical with this Bob Fosse choreography, which is so much more acrobatic and intense than the stuff you see in like singing in the rain and Gadar writes like oh it's the illusion of free you know they create real freedom and real movement and thus it breaks the capitalist bourgeois society and you know like you can say that like I mean this is the question that comes back to the idea of criticism you can sort of say that but that doesn't really lead you anywhere that's not really exploring the film form and so you know I think I think it is key to this film looking at the advertising culture and it's sort of critique of advertising culture and, quote, capitalism in, you know, big capital C. But I don't think it's saying at the end of the day, we should care as much as be aware of it and just sort of acknowledge that this whole society is a little bit of a cartoon. And maybe we all would enjoy a chicken farm. But but if we're going to live with it, let's at least acknowledge how insane it is. Yeah. And that's what the film is really about like what is success yeah. is it the job and the wife and the house or is it just being happy and can you be happy without success is like he's saying success is this fleeting chaotic random thing in capitalist culture that lives off of and thrives on the american dream where anyone can make it fast but this really has nothing to do with like talent and hard work and fairness 
Yeah, and I think that's what's something that Joe Dante actually gets to really, really great in Gremlins 2, the new batch, is like, which is much, much more like self-referential and parodying than the first Gremlins, where he's just really making fun of this sort of television Hollywood culture by setting it in this big Manhattan skyscraper and having, you know, all these different gremlins and having this guy that represents Ted Turner and like really making fun. I think, I think that's like, again, coming back to why Dante is sort of like the successor. You just watch that film, which again is like breaking form, but also making fun of the culture and the sort of like way that the Hollywood works at that time in that very like, quote, late 80s post-Reagan moment of cinema. And I think that's why Dante emerges as sort of like the successor, because he, I think he could only emerge in this time to really parody that culture in a time where, like, you know, 50s, 7 is, like, great, prosperous time to be an American. Everything is great at that time. Like, uh, and we're also entering, like, the early age of, like, sociology and psychoanalysis and all these ideas that the male is in crisis. And, it, and it's very funny. I did, um, going back to my academic, I did a big research on, uh, on this film and the apartment and looking at this idea of the male in crisis. And it's, you read much more about it than it seems people were actually in crisis. And so like, if you have, all these articles, like the Organization Man, this very famous uh, book from the 1950s, telling you you're a male in crisis, then you suddenly become in crisis and actually being in crisis. Another film that I drew comparisons to was David O. Russell's I Heart Huckabees. Oh. I think there's definite comparisons there with the male in crisis and his particular use of uh, just the colors. and. Yeah. I think you can definitely see some similarities between those two. I don't know if there's an influence there or not. You definitely get a sense of it. I, f I mean, I don't know what David O. Russell's been doing since The Fighter. Um, it sort of just throws me for a completely uh, loop. But I feel like definitely that you see it in I Heart Huckabee's Maybe Three Kings. It's like when he was a really, really strong set, you know, really strong in satire and really like, you know... Uh, like I think you said, like I Heart Huckabee with the colors and the breaking of form in, in that same way, it definitely has a sort of tasseling feeling to it and sort of, you know, and, and like actually a really good, that makes a really good example, I Heart Huckabee's, because remember that Jason Schwartzman's character goes from one philosophy to another. He goes from existentialism to nihilism and all of it, it's, it's all of it a parody of itself and every everything is just a, you know, different shade of that other color. And I think that's what, he really, really gets to in that film and sort of makes fun of it. And I, and I would love to see if he, I've never read anything where he talks about Frank Taslin. Um, but it feels like in a way his early films that before he sort of took on this like faux Scorsese sort of like style has that much more stronger satirical element and is trying to find an actual psychology within this sort of mess. Returning to Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, you mentioned Tony Randall in other films where you weren't that impressed with his performances, but what did you think of his uh, performance in uh, Rock Hunter? I, there's some, like I said, there's something about Tony Randall in this film that I think he just unlocks something, or Taslin unlocks something, and I forget if they were to get... Uh, but there's something about his face in this film, which I think is so, like, where I really do think it could have belonged in a Looney Tunes episode. 
because he just has those eyes that are just so, and he makes a great appearance in Gremlins too, I should say. Um, and, you know, obviously he's, people know him from the, oh, the odd couple, which is, you know, fine. It's, it's funny. I've seen from the episodes I've seen, but I feel like in this one, because he's just so pushed to another level. And I know he appears in like, uh, Vincent Minnelli's two weeks in another town in a small role. And he's kind of fine. Um, I'm trying to think if he appears, but I, I, other times I've seen him, he just hasn't left the impression in the way that I feel here because he's just so huff and puff. And I mean, he's not, he's not the level of like Jack Lemon is in the apartment, but he has to do something very different that Jack Lemon does because he's so like Jack Lemon's never pushed to the cartoonish level. He's always, you know, the, the, the sympathetic oaf and like, and this one, I don't think, Tony Randall's necessarily sympathetic as you just feel for you feel for the guy physically more than you feel for him emotionally, if that makes sense. Like because he's just like has to do all this running around and you see how his eyes bug out and he has to like balance this and you just feel like he's gonna crawl out of his skin in a way. And that's why I feel like this Taslin was able to make him into a cartoon in a way that he otherwise wouldn't have been. He has this like fake bravado that is like constantly crumbling. Yeah peeling away like layer and layer and just revealing this man with such low self-esteem really right but it's pretty hard to root for this guy when he's basically throughout the film cheating on his girlfriend <laughs> and i don't know how much i really want him to succeed hey that that executive washroom key who doesn't want the executive washroom key but i think that tony randall is quite brilliant in role it never really feels false no, no, he does it. He does it really, really well. Well, I think what helps is the film around him fits him in a way. And and it, I I think if the film wasn't as big as he would, you would feel that dichotomy in a way uh, much stronger. And this is uh, something that like I think you know he Frank Tassel needed someone to replace as Jerry Lewis as Jerry Lewis who had always been. And, like, he has to do something very difficult here is he has to play both the Dean Martin and the Jerry Lewis role. He has to be both the straight guy and the over-the-top crazy one at the same time. And I think that, again, coming back, again, to the film as a film about public and private life, that he has, he has to be... He has a public show, he has to be the straight guy, and privately he's about to crumble inside. And I think, again, by matching the film's stylistics to as big as his performance, he feels like he's cohesively within the environment. This is why I always hate when people talk about realism in cinema, because it doesn't matter. It's the, it does the film build a coherent world. And this film, I feel, really does build a coherent world because everything is big and insane and self-referential, and it never sort of breaks in that way that I feel other films might necessarily break. So when, you know, James Mansfield keeps doing that over-the-top laugh, of course she's doing the over-the-top laugh. That's the only thing that would fit in this world. If it was, if it was you know, toned down at all, it wouldn't be taken seriously. And Jane Mansfield, her character, it's kind of the opposite of the Rock Hunter character, where in public she's, she's this false... Um, over-the-top character in private, she's really this controlled, pragmatic businesswoman. And I know she did a film right before um, this one with with um, Frank Tasselin called The Girl Can't Help It, which I haven't seen, but I know is really, really beloved and is considered one of his best films. Um, but she definitely, like, I think she had done some film, but she was most known because she came from the Broadway play and she had sort of 
mastered this role before she came onto it. So this was very, very easy for her. And she had worked with Frank Tauslin. And I think they just create that persona so perfectly and they bounce her out with them. Um, I, I think it's really perfect that you have Joan Blondell playing the secretary, you know, so well known. I know she's worked in films for so long, but I feel like whenever I think about her, I think about her and her pre-code movies, you know, this earlier time of subversive filmmaking in a way that was about subversive scripting than necessarily subversive filmmaking in a way. Uh, though there are some pretty wacky, insane ones, but I feel like those two bounce each other out because it's like, I feel like having Joan Blondell makes you think, oh, I've been here, honey. I know how insane this is. And now I'm just sort of like the mentor role. But I guess I have a bit of a problem with her character in that I feel like her moments of weakness and uncertainty, they feel a little insincere. But And maybe it's just me, but I feel like they don't do enough to make us fall in love with this woman. Like, yeah. in some like it hot. You can't help but want Marilyn Monroe, but I can't for the life of me see how anyone could stand being with this woman for long stretches of time. But then again, nobody, nobody falls in... Tony Randall doesn't have to fall in love with her at the end of the day. Um, which I think is part of the key is that this is all basically a game for her so she can convince, you know, um, George to get back with her and sort of, you know, do this whole thing. Um, uh, and with the awesome lipstick at the end. Um, but, um, you know, I think she's always going to be, um, this over the top insane figure. And I think you are supposed to take it, but I do love her just like when, when you do get to see her doing her like little scheming bits, I think those are the parts where I kind of, you, you like, it's like she's an unsympathetic, unsympathetic character that you love sort of watching her scheme because you like seeing her being as malicious as everyone else, else in a way, especially because her persona is so, you know, I'm just a, I'm just an innocent Marilyn Monroe character and I don't know what's going on. She knows what's going on at every second. And I think this is something where she really gets to if you read like, um, uh, oh, I forget who writes about Marilyn Monroe really good. There's this great, um, uh, writer about, um, star power. Um, I'm just trying, uh, it's, he's an academic, but he's a really, really good academic. Um, Oh, Richard Dyer, when he writes about Marilyn Monroe and says that the the joke is of Marilyn Monroe is that she acts innocent when she knows exactly what she's doing. And so I think what Tasselin, again, doing here is exposing that idea that, like, oh, you get that because you, you don't, you know, you secretly know that about Marilyn Monroe whenever you watch her, whether it's, you know, doing one of the USO shows or whatever, just in her films. But I think what James Mansfield does that is that she exposes that and she works with that and she brings you those two contrasts. So you have to like, you can't put those two ideas together, but he wants you to have those contrasting ideas in your head as you watch this character. And I feel like that's where Jane Mansfield and her act acting capabilities really shines. But it comes just short for me when she's portraying those moments of weakness and a bit of an uncertainty. And I, just, I guess I don't feel the sincerity and don't get any sympathy for that character. Yeah, and I don't know, like, again, it comes back to, are we really supposed to feel sympathetic? Do we really feel she can have sympathy? And I think this is, comes back to the idea, like, she's so part of this world, this advertising celebrity culture world, 
that for her to have an outside presence is almost impossible. She can't, she can't, when she has to actually be sympathetic, it's, it's again, it's being layered through so many ideas of what sympathy means to her, what she's been told sympathy is. And it's sort of like confusing for her in a way. So it's like, I think it's sort of like this idea that she can't necessarily escape that in a way. Okay, so do you have anything else you want to discuss? I mean, I'll just say, like, you know, Frank Tasslin is such a, like, a suit. Like, you're either going to laugh with him or not. He's not exactly the easiest filmmaker to get into. Either, like, I think you have to, like... I think for me, it's like, I had, when I first saw this film, I had really just seen a bunch of Hollywood films at the time. And I really love Hollywood films. And I love, like, classical Hollywood films. But I think this one just sort of pokes you in so many different ways. Like, it's just like a really, really good feeling of t being tickled for me, which feels so weird. But it's just like it makes you feel for cinema in a very, very different way. It makes you think about it. And not that I don't want to say that, you know, this film and, you know, Frank Tassel in a way represents this sort of hierarchy of cinema. But he, he gives you that sort of bone that I feel needs to sort of like you feel in a different way. It makes you feel like you're getting something different that you don't necessarily get when you watch classical film or Hollywood film today. Um, or people who are even like, you know, people are really right now, they're all over um, Phil Miller and Chris Lord, who did the Lego movie and did 21 Jump Street, which I feel like people keep saying that, oh, they're great satirists and they're great, you know, they expose the form too much and or so much. And I haven't seen the Lego movie, but, I, I feel like when I, I – everything I've read about it, and I'll eventually catch up with it, I don't know if they do it in the same way that I feel I really get with, like, Joe Dante when he did, like, Looney Tunes back in action, uh, and especially when you go back to Frank Tesson. I feel like they expose it in a very different way that I feel isn't – you you brought up postmodernism, but what they do is they don't do this sort of post-irony idea because they actually love this. Like, I think you brought that up, the idea. They actually love the things that they're doing and the things that they're making fun of. And I don't think someone like when you watch 21 Jump Street, I feel like they're just sort of like there's a sort of irony filter on it that you don't get. And I think it, even maybe that's what separates David O. Russell is he is working through these certain irony filters that – I think he really knew how to do it, but I feel like there is no, there's postmodernism, but there's not post irony. This film is not being ironic. It's actually really, really in love with everything it's making fun of. And I think that's what makes it so special for me at the end of the day and why I adore this movie. And I think for me that I find the film, I find it, that it's interesting talking about it after the fact and yeah. like talking about the satire and the themes more than I enjoy watching the film itself. I mean, I I admire it for what it addresses, but I admire it perhaps more than how it addresses those uh, those themes. And I think it's simply because much of the humor, it, it simply doesn't work for me. So it falls flat most of the time in that department. But it is a very interesting film to talk about. Exactly. It's like, you know, like it's... He he is such an acquired taste, and like I think it was just like I grew up watching Looney Tunes. So like when I discovered this, I, it was like it, it in a way it's like it combines my adult cinema sensibility with my childhood love of just watching Roadrunner cartoons in a way, and I think that's what 
makes it work for me so well. Okay, so we can start wrapping this show up. But, um, Peter, where can we find you online? And uh, what's going on with the Cinephiliacs? The Cinephiliacs, the, like I mentioned before, the next guest is going to be Kent Jones. Um, we're actually going to be talking about a really rare film called Spawn of the North, which is Henry Hathaway. People remember him for True Grit. Um, but this was an early film he did in the late 30s with Henry Fonda and George Raft. Um, and then the interview with Kent is amazing. Uh, so you can check out the podcast. It's on iTunes. Search for Cinephiliacs. Or just go to the website, uh, www.thecinephiliacs.net. Um, if you want to follow some writing, I've got some writing stuff that you know I do. Just check out my blog, www.labuzamovies.com. And I'm always on Twitter, making jokes, pointing you to interesting things at at Movies. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. It was great having you on. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And people, you should really check out Peter's podcast, The Cinephiliacs. It is a fantastic show, providing great insight and just interesting stories from the critics themselves. You can find us on Twitter at MLC underscore cast. You can email us at mastersofcinemacast at gmail.com. You can find us online at moccast.blogspot.com. And get in touch and tell us what you think of Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter and other shows we've done in the past. Um, it would be great if you could leave a five-star review on iTunes. It would really help us get the listenership up. And so, until next time, goodbye.